Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. One of the most important preparations for a preacher is to be reading the scriptures in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. Maybe today we need to say, have your tablet in the other hand. <laughs> We're not always reading paper newspapers anymore. Yeah, have your cell phone with notifications on, basically. <laughs> there you go. But my first step is always a contemplative listening and reading very carefully and reflecting and praying very intently with the readings themselves. And then to connect that with what is the hopeful word we need today in the precise things that are happening in our world. Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo de Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media, and an associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier in New York City. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of some of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week, we are again joined by Barbara Reed, who first spoke with us on Preach at the start of the Advent season. Barbara is a Dominican sister of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the president of the Catholic Theological Union, one of the premier schools of theology and ministry in the U.S., forming students from more than 40 countries to be effective leaders in the church. She's the Carol Stuhlmuller CP Distinguished Professor of New Testament Studies at CTU and a leading scholar in feminist interpretation of the scriptures. And Barbara is also the general editor for the Wisdom Commentary series, a new 58-volume feminist commentary on the Bible published by Liturgical Press, which I highly recommend. Barbara, welcome back to Preach. Thank you, Ricardo. It's lovely to be with you again. It's so good to be with you. Barbara, we're going to have the chance to hear you preach this time, not just your wisdom, although we'll have plenty of time for that. So let's jump in with the regular format of the show. I know you're preaching for Christmas Day, and it's the Mass during the day. What are the readings that you're focusing on in your homily? You know, for Christmas, we have a lot of choices. But for the Mass of the day, the readings are, first of all, from the prophet Isaiah, from chapter 52. And we've been listening to the first reading from Isaiah all through the Advent season, three of the four Sundays. And it's such an appropriate book in the Bible to turn to in Advent and now for Christmas Day, because it's a book in which the prophet is proclaiming hope and encouragement to the exiles from Babylon who are returning back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is in ruins, and their lives have been shattered. Many of them are beaten down and distressed. It's really important to connect those 
times of promise and hope in the Old Testament with our celebration of the Christ and of our New Testament beliefs, because it shows us that God's salvation, God's care for God's people is nothing new in sending the Christ child. And then the responsorial psalm is Psalm 98, and it's a jubilant, exuberant psalm that exalts in all the wondrous deeds that God has done. And the refrain is, all the ends of the earth have seen the power of God. And so it expands the joy and the delight to the whole entire world. And today I would hope that the psalmist would also be thinking of all the creatures and earth itself, that this revelation of God's joy and delight and salvation extends to the whole entire universe. And then the second reading is from the letter to the Hebrews. There is this extraordinary image of not only God having created and and now saving the universe, but also speaks about the one who has come as the refulgence of God's glory, the very imprint of God's being, who sustains all things by his mighty word. And so it's, again, a vision that expands our horizons outward so that the Christ event is not something that God does for us human beings, but for the whole entire cosmos. And then we get to the prologue of the Gospel of John, and that first line in the beginning, evoking the first line of the book of Genesis, in the beginning of creation. And so God is doing something new and exciting, and has been from even before the beginning, before anything had come into being. And the highlight of the prologue is in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's also a couple of inserts in there about John the Baptist, and there's also a somber note about those who won't accept the word that has become flesh, and already pointing ahead toward the passion and resurrection. And it may seem odd on Christmas Day to be bringing in thoughts of Jesus's crucifixion, but there is no story of the incarnation without the culmination of Jesus's earthly life with us and the pointing ahead toward resurrected life with him. The prologue is like an overture to the whole gospel. Thank you, Barbara. You're speaking about people's experiences and how people receive the gospel. Your preaching is being received into a community. Who are you preparing this homily for? What is the community you have in mind? Well, I live in Hyde Park in Chicago, one of the neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. And our local parish is St. Thomas the Apostle. It's an extraordinarily diverse parish. People of all different races and ethnic backgrounds, people from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. The parish is right on the edge of the campus of the University of Chicago, and also there are four theological schools in the neighborhood, including Catholic Theological Union. So there are a number of people who are also very well educated theologically in the congregation. At the same time, there are quite a number of people who don't have an advanced education and who are socioeconomically more disadvantaged. 
And so it's quite a challenge for the preacher in that congregation Mm -hmm. to be able to speak to very diverse experiences and backgrounds. Well, Barbara, you're a scripture scholar, so this is kind of laying down the gauntlet for you. (laughs) You know, we're about to hear your homily. I hope that you will make it such that it will be easy to understand for those of us who aren't scripture scholars, and I have no doubt you will. So I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) I hope so too, Ricardo. (laughs) Thanks for your vote of confidence. (laughs) We will now hear Barbara Reed's homily for Christmas Mass during the day, especially recorded for Preach. Some people love to camp outdoors, including in the dead of winter. My brother-in-law is one. He and his buddies love to commune with nature, cook their food over an open fire, and sleep out under the stars. Me, I'm happy to make brief forays outdoors for a hike in the winter. But at night, I prefer the comforts of home over a lumpy sleeping bag on the hard earth. While my brother-in-law and his buddies do this by choice for one weekend a year, there are people in our city who are camping out not by choice. It is a shock to see people living in makeshift shelters, in abandoned schools, church basements, police stations, and in the hotel right next door to me. As Chicago struggles to house the more than 26,000 migrants and refugees who have arrived in our city and in our very neighborhood this year. When I heard that the city had plans to erect several tent cities, I could only think of how dreadful tenting in winter would be for people accustomed to equatorial climates. Last week, some of the people who live next door to me were wearing flip-flops and shorts on a day when the high was only 40 degrees. What is the incarnate one who tents among us, asking of us in this moment? In today's gospel, the central verse of the prologue of John exultantly proclaims that God likes to camp with us. The Greek verb there, eskenosen, literally means pitched his tent. This is not a new message. During the wilderness wandering, as the Israelites crossed from bondage in Egypt to the promised land, they experienced God's presence in the tent of meeting. Israel's God did not remain in a stationary temple, but rather traveled with the people throughout their desert sojourn. This experience of God with us takes on an extraordinary new dimension when the Holy One tents with us in human flesh in the person of Jesus, journeying with us in the most intimate way possible. The first part of today's gospel describes a cozy at-homeness that existed from the beginning between Theos, God, and the Logos, the Word. The two share a oneness and together take delight in giving birth to all that came to be. Their intimacy is fruitful. Their love does not stay at home in a closed circle, but gives birth to all that lives. The supreme act of self-emptying love is when God pours forth divine love in the tent of human skin. Just as leaving a sturdy home to camp in a canvas tent makes one vulnerable to the elements and to danger, 
so does Jesus' donning of human flesh. John's prologue already points toward the rejection and execution of Jesus. There will be those who do not recognize the Creator's love masked in human flesh. They miss the truth that the divine impulse is to become one with the most fragile of humanity. Jesus seeks out and identifies with those who camp on the edge of poverty. Extraordinary things can happen when camping in the wilderness. Israel found that when God's tent was pitched with them in the desert, it was both a time of trial and of honeymoon, stripped of any of the ordinary ways in which they might provide for themselves. They had to rely on their divine provider, even for their physical existence, depending on manna from heaven and water from rock. The gospel asserts that in the new divine act of grace on top of grace, Jesus himself becomes bread for a hungry people and quenches all thirst. The amazing thing is that although the Logos has gone camping with humankind, he has not left the home that he has with the Os, with God. Even as he dwells with humanity, he is yet at the Father's side. That phrase in the last line of today's gospel, Eston Kalpan, is literally at the breast or the bosom of the Father. Here is an extraordinary image. The Son is at the breast of the Father. It is an image of the intimacy of a nursing mother with her child, that same intimacy that God wants to have with us, the same intimacy that is shared between Jesus and all his disciples symbolized in the figure of the nameless beloved disciple who at the Last Supper reclines at Jesus' side, literally in the bosom and tokolpo of Jesus. In our celebration of Christmas, we not only rejoice in God tenting with us in human form, but as followers of Christ, we too are invited out of our comfortable abodes to pitch our tent with the most vulnerable and needy in our communities, while resting always in our one permanent home, the bosom of the Holy One. That was Barbara Reed for Preach. When we come back, Barbara reflects on how she maintains joy in her preaching amid the violence and devastation of our world. Welcome back to Preach. Barbara, that was such a powerful homily, and I don't say that lightly because it picks up on so many images and contrasts that maybe sometimes we miss at Christmas time. Christmas is filled with lights and festivity. And of course, this year, as it was last year, as in fact it has been for many years, but perhaps we're more aware of it now, Christmas this year, for so many people, is not lights and festivity. It's sort of bullets flying in the air and rockets crashing in wars. And I think a homily like yours, where we've been asked to forego some of the more traditional celebrations by the patriarchs of Jerusalem in solidarity with the people in war, a homily like yours really helps us to connect with that. So I wonder what you can say to preachers 
who are trying to celebrate Christmas in a meaningful way this year, but yet don't want to upset their congregations by, you know, stripping all the lights and festivities and Christmas trees? I think one of the most important things in these extremely troubled times is that we do have the lights, both metaphorically and physically, and that our most important gift and our most important approach, not only to the Advent and Christmas season, but to our lives overall, is never to let hope dim. The gospel message on Christmas is full of light and joy, and to succumb to despair in the midst of these very difficult times is exactly the opposite of what kind of gift we have been given and that we must share with all others in our orbits. The refusal to give in to despair is absolutely critical and has been through so many difficult times throughout biblical history. And that is one of the jobs of a prophet. And so the prophet Isaiah, for example, whose message we hear in the first reading, the job of a prophet is not just to proclaim doom and gloom. The prophet is to name what is not right, what is not according to God's dream for humanity and for the cosmos. But that's only half of the prophet's job. The other half of the job is to keep hope alive. Not only is that completely embedded in our scriptures, but it's also something that we take to heart in our real lives as Christians. You cannot get through the difficult times. There cannot be the transformation that we long for if we don't rejoice, if we don't sing, even in the midst of all of the troubles. I think of Miriam, for example, leading the singing and the dancing after the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea, and they are not even halfway there yet. <laughs> you know. But if you don't pause to sing, rejoice, acclaim what God has done in the past, and that you know God is doing in the present, and that you trust God is leading us toward into the future— then you have the energy and the inner resilience to be able to face the troubles. That's so helpful because I think as preachers, certainly I know for myself, even though I really fought this temptation to fall into despair during Gaudete Sunday because we're constantly reminded and bombarded with all that's going on in the world. And so as preachers, how do we come to that place on Christmas Day where we can preach the joyful message. You've done that work already. So how did you get there? You know, how did you come to these images, these very powerful images of the tent, this very powerful image of Jesus at the breast of God, which are quite unusual images. Obviously, it's your scriptural wisdom and years of learning and being able to command those languages. But what would you counsel preachers to do at this time? I know this is an old saying, this is not something new, but one of the most important preparations for a preacher is to be reading the scriptures in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand. Maybe today we need to say, have your tablet in the other hand. <laughs> We're not always reading paper newspapers anymore. Yeah, have your cell phone with notifications on, basically. <laughs> there you go. But my first step is always a contemplative listening and reading very carefully and 
reflecting and praying very intently with the readings themselves. If I've gotten rusty on the biblical and symbolic and exegetical details of the reading, the original setting, the original audience for those readings, I'll put my scholarly hat on and do that work. I very consciously move into how will I tell the story, not exegete the text. I need to exegete the text so I know what as best we can determine the original context and meaning was, but that's not what I'm going to share in a homily. What I focus on is where is the good news? Where is the hopeful message in these texts? What was the biblical author saying that brought hope to the original people who heard these readings? And then to connect that with what is the hopeful word we need today in the precise things that are happening in our world. I try also to let the imagery speak to me, to try to paint a picture in words, because images will stay, at least they do with me. Sometimes there's a temptation for preachers to use a diving board approach. You know, you see a word or a phrase in scripture, and then you use that as a jump off point to say something that you have on your heart that you want to say even a predetermined message that really then doesn't connect at all with the scriptures that you've just proclaimed. And that, I think, is sometimes a temptation that takes us off the mark. So what's the test for that? You know, How can we test ourselves to make sure that what we're reflecting on or the images we're using in our preaching are connected to the global message of the scriptures and not simply to what I want to get out in front of my congregation? Well, one way to test it is if a person heard the homily without having heard the biblical texts that were proclaimed just before the homily, would they recognize or would they be able to guess what were the biblical readings that this homily is flowing from? Not just one word in my introduction that connects to the scriptures. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Talking about words, talking about your own scholarly wisdom, you know, the ways in which you approach preaching, what are the resources that really help you to prepare when you're thinking about a homily? Not about writing the next essay for your scriptural studies, but truly for a homily. What are homiletic resources for you? Well, I do turn to biblical commentaries. And if this isn't too self-serving, the commentary series that I edit, the Wisdom Commentary Series, which gives feminist perspectives on all of the texts in that book of the Bible. I have a copy in my hand right now, so that was very helpful for this particular episode. (laughs) Thank you. I also turn to other commentaries that are written from perspectives that are post-colonial, Latino, Black Catholic, Asian, and Asian American, to try to hear what those who we don't always hear from, what do they hear and see in these readings? And so, As my homily for Christmas said that Jesus prefers to tent with those on the margins, many of our commentaries traditionally have not been written by those on the margins, but those who represent the dominant culture and who are privileged with a very elite education. So in these days, there's an extraordinary wealth of commentaries and essays that are emerging from people who haven't been traditionally listened to. And so I find it very helpful 
to pay attention to those kinds of resources, which help me see from a perspective other than my own and help keep a more global lens in the preaching and in my own learning and understanding of the text. I also confess that once in a while I turn to homily helps, or I will also ask colleagues who are preaching on the same Sunday or who have preached on the same Sunday or whatever day it is to share their homilies with me. I don't steal their ideas or their images, but what it does is it sparks my own imagination and then leads me to the imagery and the message that is emerging from my own prayer and study. Yeah. I mean, it's about the community, right? God with us. God is in all of us, and God can speak through the people that are preaching as well, if we connect with that community. I'd like to go back to what you said about reading from different perspectives, you know, post-colonial, Latino, Black, Asian. Specifically, your specialization is in feminist interpretation of the scriptures. It was one of the most liberating things for me to discover that I could see God as mother. I was raised as an only child to a single mother, and speaking about God as father didn't really connect with me. And so understanding this maternal aspect of God, and as you've put it into your homily today, this idea of being at the breast of God is a much more comforting, is a much more real image for me. Why do you think it's so important for us to go into the scriptures from these particular lenses? What does it do for our preaching and for our congregation as a result? I think one of the things that it does is that it allows for people who are listening, reflecting on the homily, to be able to see themselves in the experiences that are described. So, for example, I've heard a number of homilies that have begun something like this. When I was in the seminary, and then the preacher will tell a story, and there might be one other person in the congregation who has that experience, but everybody else is just now tuned out. I didn't go to seminary. I'm, that's nice for you, Father, but that doesn't connect with me. When we're keeping in mind so many different perspectives, it allows our congregation to hear themselves in the message and to be moved to accept and to enact what the message is calling for. So to hear yourself in what is being proclaimed and to take to heart, it's easier if you can hear yourself in it than to have to translate. So for example, when we get the reading of the call of the first disciples, and it's only men and women who are asked to enter into reflecting on that, we have to try to hear it it's hard to hear the call of the disciples and put yourself into the story if it's only men in the story. And there are no call stories of women disciples. Although one thing that's become clear to me is that in Luke's account of the Annunciation to Mary, I see all the same elements of the call of a prophet, all the same characteristics in that story. And so that insight has had a profound effect on how I hear the Annunciation to Mary and how I can appropriate the kind of invitation to her that she received and what's God's invitation to me. It's very different from when I was growing up as a young, devout Catholic girl, and everything I had heard preached about Mary in the Annunciation was how docile she was, how completely malleable to God's will, 
how pious, you know, anything you want me to do, dear God. And oftentimes it also got translated into how women in the church and in society should be docile to the will of men who were leaders in church and society. And now, using feminist lenses, I see a much different picture of Mary in that text. I see a strong woman who doesn't need a male mediator between her and God's messenger, that she speaks for herself. She doesn't just say, yes, okay, anything you want, but she questions and discerns. And she makes a deliberate choice of saying yes, even though she doesn't know a thing that she is saying yes to. Not to be too irreverent, I call it Mary's WTF moment, like, what's going on? <laughs> you know, And how do I respond to this? But she's ready to respond. And mm. I think that's a really powerful reimagining. And I think the difference that it makes is that, especially for women believers, is that we can see ourselves in Mary, who is an empowered person, and who then in the next scene proclaims a Magnificat that is no sweet lullaby, that is calling for an utter transformation. And we can see ourselves, too, being able to exercise those kinds of prophetic ministries, both in word and deed, that lead other believers into transformative ways of responding to God's powerful call. And although Mary plays a unique role, she then provides an example for all of us, male and female, for how to respond to God's incredible asks and how to draw strength and grace in those difficult moments and how all of us can be God-bearers. Speaking about Mary, she's central to the Christmas story. How do you think we can bring Mary into our preaching at Christmas in a way that really empowers this feminist perspective that you've worked hard to bring to audiences? That's a great question, Ricardo. Mary's very present, especially on the fourth Sunday of Advent when we have the Annunciation as the gospel text for that Sunday. And what I want to say is that feminist perspectives are not just about female characters in the story, but it's rather reading with the lenses that foreground women's experience, even when there's not a female character in the gospel story. So certainly, yes, to keep Mary in the picture, but I'd also want to keep Joseph in the picture. And Joseph's extraordinary model of obedience that is not pro forma, it is not imposed. Joseph gives us a model of one who discerns and has to wrestle with what is the right way forward? What is the just way? And how he comes to the extraordinary insight of putting his own honor out of the center and putting the vulnerable child and his mother into the center of concern and then agreeing to sacrifice his own honor and pride to preserve their well-being is an extraordinary story that when you bring feminist lenses of all the ways that many women and other disadvantaged persons have been cast aside by those who are in positions of power and privilege or who have been abused by persons of power and privilege, that gives us a whole other 
insight into the role of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in the Christmas story. Barbara, you have given us so much to reflect on. You've given me so many directions to take my homily in for Christmas Day. Thank you. I'm going to be preaching to the little kids, though, so I have to try and translate all of that to a much smaller audience. Thank you so much. A very Merry Christmas when it comes around, and I'm sure we'll have you again on Preach. Thank you, and the same to you. It's a real pleasure. What a gift. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative, a project of Lilly Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Kevin Christopher Robles and Michael O'Brien offered production assistance. Frank Tewson is our audio engineer and designed the theme score and composed original music for the show. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer and we recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. You can also follow me on X or Instagram at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. Before we go, we're nearing the end of the calendar year. We've been on air for a couple of months, and the Preach team really wants to hear from you. What have you enjoyed? How can we grow? How can we best continue to accompany you in your preaching and spiritual life? What's been helpful? What hasn't? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please just click the link to a brief survey in our show notes. Thank you for your support over these last months. We wish you a very Merry Christmas, and we will be with you again very soon. For America Media, I'm Ricardo de Silva. Merry Christmas, and until next time, keep preaching the good news. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.